0: Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith and Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa
1: University. Welcome to our show. This is the Faith and Economics podcast from the Gortney Institute. So, I am Justin Clark, Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, and with me is our host, Dr. Russ McCullough.
0: All right, so yes, I am the founder of the Gortman Institute here and professor of economics I hold the Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We have a special guest today, um, it is Charles Bryfogel. And uh, he has some interesting stuff that he wrote on that I thought would be fun to talk about on the podcast. So Charles has a background in law and Christian economics since 2007. Uh, he's been involved in some court cases dealing with Aboriginal children's uh, rights, assisting Aboriginal nation to, uh, to get started, as well as some research that he's done. And, and so part of that work was, uh, is there any prospect for an Israel and Nehemiah or a Christian Jubilee. And so I thought that sounded like a fun topic for our faith and economics. Uh, Charles, welcome to the show and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Thank you. Well, for the last, what, 13 years, I have been spending most of my, have retired in 2006, and I've spent most of my time doing Christian economic research and/or applying my prior legal background to assisting uh, Indians in, in British Columbia, but so most do, you have of a my law, do you
0: have a law degree, Charles? <laughs> uh, what what what's your previous background before you retired?
2: <laughs> That's very interesting. I got involved with bond fraud at the United, uh, at the University of Arizona back in the eighties, and they put me off in a um, purgatory for a year. <laughs> right across the law library. So I took the year to learn law, and then I started trying to deal with the with the bond fraud. It didn't work because at that time it was, what well, I didn't realize, it was just the experimentation on how universities in the United States could incur debt without having to pay it back. And I was shut, after 10 years, I was then shut down. After I'd gotten admissions, but that was, that's like ancient history. That's what I used to do.
0: Okay. So yeah, so it was but what I've been that, involved it, it was... with for the
2: last 15 years has looking at Christian economics. I started looking in 2007 as to what the nature of Christianity was then in 2007. And that led me by 2012 into Christian economics, which is what I've been involved with since then. I got involved in looking at the concept of debt jubilees because I have been very intrigued by uh, Michael Hudson's study on debt jubilees. And when we started getting into the problems in, the, in 2020, what I was looking at was, well, can you apply the biblical debt jubilee concept to the 20th century? And that is what I've been looking at for the last five months.
0: Okay. And so what's your what's your consensus on that? Uh, I I it sounds like it's a work in progress, but in, in general,
1: um well, do you think what... do you think it can be done? Can I just oh, wait, Justin? ask ask a question? So for some of our listeners might need to know what a debt jubilee is.
2: Michael Hudson Absolutely. is probably yeah, Michael Hudson in '93, nineteen ninety-three. 1993, came out with what was a definitive, I believe a definitive study on debt jubilees. Debt jubilees were something that were done in Mesopotamia for 2000 years, in Jerusalem for a period of two or 300 years, where at a point in time, all debt was canceled. All money, if it was not secured debt, not secure value, then it was returned, it basically freeing debt and freeing any unsecured assets and then it would restart and be a restart and under the in the jerusalem process it was every 50 years in mesopotamia it went on for 1500 years occurring every time a society reached the point that it could no longer bear the costs of all the debt and this which was creating slavery so the king just abolished all debt and started everybody all over from from scratch now so the,
0: why, what people would have to lend money at pretty high rates if they knew that long-term contracts weren't being honored.
2: Well, in Jerusalem, I'm, we don't know because, of course, there's no emails from the period. All, <laughs> we, all we know is that every periodically the Mesopotamian kings just canceled, I assume, without much notice, cancel all debt and, and reset the economy and started from scratch. In Jerusalem, um, from the time of, of Ezra and Nehemiah in the sixth century BC, it was every 50 years, debts were canceled and land was returned and started again. So you're right, the details, again, there's no there is no real record of the details of how people react to this. All I know is it happened. And for a period of time, that's how society used to do it. But from 400 B.C. in Jerusalem or 400 or 500 B.C. in the rest of the world, the elites had found ways to stop that G.B. from having or happening, and they didn't happen for the next 2,500 years. Instead, the alternative occurred, which was an economy would reach a break, point where it would break and then it would collapse. And then the restart was from the survivors of the collapse. There have been two interesting debt jubilees in, in North America in the 20th century. Both of them occurred in 1949. One was the Chinese communists in China, where they canceled all debt, all wealth, all ownership on the spot. And they did so by, by fiat and decree. And the Allies also in 1949 canceled all German debt, all the Nazi debt. The details, I have not yet been able to find out how far down that reach, but certainly all government debt and obligations were just wiped off the book. So there is Well, no-
0: Okay, so let me let me stop you there. So I, I've done a, a little bit of uh, work with this years ago, and I might point you and our leader uh, listeners to um, a book called For the Least of These, A Biblical Answer to Poverty. It was put out by the Faith, uh, Work, and Economics Group, the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, And a theologian there, Art Lindsley, wrote this chapter, and there are a number of theologians that agree the Jubilee was actually more of a lease arrangement rather than a straight debt forgiveness. So on the 50th year, uh, when the year of Jubilee, what they were so jubilous about was that they kind of reset things in terms of their contract, but the prices that they sold or the debts that they took on, uh, the, the Jubilee year was always factored into account. So for instance, if we were five years out of a Jubilee year on the 50th year, then the debt amount would be, uh, they, one example they gave, I just looked it up, was uh, uh, suppose you got $250,000 worth of debt and there's five years left on the land and the land is expected to produce uh, $50,000 worth of crops per year. So the holder of the debt instrument would actually collect the crops in the meantime. So it was actually more akin to a lease arrangement than it was I took on some debt and then somebody poof made it disappear. Uh, because if they knew the, the year of Jubilee was going to happen, then nobody would have actually lent them money that they couldn't get back. And so that was, the arrangement that these theologians- I would agree with you there
2: wholeheartedly. That that did okay. occur. But okay. the other side of it was that those who could not pay, their debt was cleared. Yeah, you're right. that and uh, For example, town debt did not disappear. Town debt remained. So the debt jee believes never dealt with town debt. We do not well, know. Go with, ahead. The lease,
0: with the lease arrangement, though, it was more of like, so the Israelite was the landlord, and, so, and the, the banker, so to speak, gave the Israelite $250,000, but then the banker's payback was just the, the reaping of the crops for the next five years. And so once that five years ended, it automatically reverted back to the Israelite. And so there was really no debt forgiveness per se. Um, it was more of that was the contract to begin with. It was always more of a lease arrangement. Now, some of your other examples, I can't speak to that, that might, but from the, um, from the biblical standpoint, this was from Leviticus 25 and they, they have Bible verses cited and whatnot um, that gives some evidence. And there's some pretty heavy hitter theologians, uh, Harrison, Winham, Tideball, Ron Sider and Kaiser that kind of came to that same conclusion and support. So there's a a decent uh, range of theologians that put it in the, in the form of this kind of lease arrangement.
2: But that only did, yes, but that did not deal with private debt. And private debt was canceled as well. So if you had like a consumer loan that died. So I, yes, mean, I think that, they went on to say, though,
0: that, that the, those sorts of private debts really didn't go on, I don't think. Or do you have some um, biblical indent- sites that say
2: otherwise? Indent- indenture thing is basically one of the indentures. That's correct, and that was abolished at the, end of, at the 50th year. A slave was, was released, in, uh, if they'd gone into yeah. slavery, they were released. I mean, you're and, right. And there similarly, wasn't if,
0: that's, yeah, if, if that's the culture, it's like, we know that God said this is the rules, and so I have you for the next seven years, and I'll consider that good in payment of your debt, essentially, because I know that God says, i got to let you go on the 50th on the year of Jubilee, right? Right. Um, so, so somehow that was factored into their thinking. Um, which is a little different than our story today. That's that's the point I wanted to bring up is that when people take on debts, whether it's student loan debt or other sorts of debts, uh, these are contractual arrangements between the two parties. And they, they both know going into it that there might be uh, something that could happen. And then in the United States, anyway, we have our bankruptcy laws that really allow a Jubilee effect, so to speak. So i from the, from the private standpoint, but, are you, are you arguing that maybe just society-wide, we should just wipe out all, all the debts and everybody restart?
2: Only if we reach the point that, this is, that the economy cannot continue. For example, for the last five years, before 2000, to 2020, the economy was growing, irrespective of bubbles or not. I'm not going to get into that kind of an argument but the economy was continuously growing. What has happened as a, the COVID-19 virus is that a lot of the fracturing and the inadequate in, in capacity to pay for debt has been revealed. And as re, we've reached now that there is, people are going out of work, there's people losing jobs, businesses are shutting down, and how is the government going to continue paying for what is an excess from 100 years ago, a bureaucracy that has been maintained to provide all the social services which are not provided. What happens when that breaks down? To me, the best example uh, would be the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union refused to adapt and it collapsed. I'm fearful of the same things, I'm pretty convinced. That's what's gonna happen again, is that we're gonna have a collapse because the current power structure is not prepared to do whatever the necessary things are in order to keep the things going. The alternative has always been to do nothing, let things collapse, and then the survivors pick it up. So do I think that there's going to be a, is there a prospect for a societal economic collapse? Yes. Is Can it be resolved? Yes. I Do I have an answer? No, I do not. I wish I had a magic elixir and put it in a bottle and sell it, but I don't have one. What okay. my <clears throat> yeah, I think
0: that, that looks like a good place to take our break. Um, when we come back, I want to touch more on what you said about um, maybe government debt versus private debt and kind of think through, uh, are we on the verge of an economic collapse? What does an economic collapse actually look like? And so we'll be back in 30 seconds.
2: Okay. The Gortney Institute is seeking a graduate assistant. Earn your MBA with full tuition by participating in fun and impactful events. For more information, check out the Gortney Institute website. To ask a question for our mailbag, send us an email at info@gortneyinstitute.org or call us at 785-248-2551. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Justin or Russ today.
0: Welcome back. Uh, we've got Charles Breifogel on and uh, talking about the idea of forgiving all debts uh, nationwide. Should we just have some sort of uh, restart? Are we on the verge of a, of a collapse? Uh, we were talking about the shrinking of the United States. Uh, the last estimate I just heard today, I think, was a, a 3% worldwide decline in GDP. Well, that's world GDP adding up all, all of the incomes and um, of course, unemployment rates are in the, the 20%. So, if there, if we are pending collapse, with some sort of debt forgiveness? Um, in fact, let, let's just start with that one. Justin, what were you thinking? What was your question for
1: Charles? So, my question had to do with uh, whether or not he was, uh, whether or not Charles is proposing debt forgiveness as something that will stave off or postpone an economic. Collapse, or whether or not he is saying that debt forgiveness will be the result of the economic collapse.
2: I I believe that debt relief, debt cancellation, has always been used to stave off collapse, and I believe here it would stave off collapse because if there's a if there's a complete economic societal economic collapse, it'll take care of itself. There will be no debt there'll be no government debt there'll be no pensions because there'll be nothing people will be rebuilding from nothing if we take Germany in 1949 when the Allies canceled all the debt there were no pensions there was there, the only thing that people owned was they owned their buildings and the factories but they all the money and all the paper debt was gone so but that's that so to me a, a debt jubilee would be a forestalling an economic collapse now well
0: i I guess i'd I'd have to disagree with you there charles i i I think here's my thought on it is that if we just threw all the debts out the window and and kind of started over i I think it would actually create a worse collapse than had we wrote it out or just let thing let the chips fall where they may And, and here's why um, part of our economy is, is really built on uh, our banking system and uh, the way we can leverage funds. So uh, retirees like yourself, maybe, have uh, have a lot of funds, maybe somewhat liquid sitting in, in banks, and banks are acting as an intermediary to get that those funds out into people's hands, entrepreneurs that have new ideas and new things to do. And so they're always looking for the the best people with the lowest amount of risk, uh, so that they can earn a profit between the interest rate they 're paying the retirees and and the interest rates that the prospective entrepreneurs are are bringing in and so if those bankers couldn 't use that intermediary function, there would be a severe contraction of economic activity that I think in and it of itself would create I don't know if I want to use the word collapse or not, but basically a, a severe breakdown of our of our entire system. And, and I, I don't think that would be worth doing because we already have uh, a number of capital controls and lending requirements. That's a pendulum that I've learned swings back and forth generation after generation. But after the 2008 financial crisis, um, the, the banks are in much better financial position to handle a contraction compared to where they were at in 2008. And so uh, that pendulum will likely swing out again, but but to have all those debts wipe out, I'm leaning a little bit more towards Justin's uh, thought. And I don't know if this was your thought, but I guess the other argument that Justin was making of whether uh, some sort of debt forgiveness might be the result of a collapse. Like if we're all just standing around trying to pick up the pieces, like, wow, that was um, a disaster. And, you know, half the population is wiped out because of COVID and we literally have to live in caves and, and uh, get by on the littlest of little, I think we'll essentially reset ourselves um, that it would be more of the result of a collapse than, than um, something that would help stave off collapse. So I guess that would be my pushback on that. I, I don't, what are your thoughts there, if that makes any sense?
2: I can't disagree with your position. I guess it's wishful thinking. I started off about three or four months ago on the assumption that a collapse was the most likely thing to occur, given the intransigence of the two sides. There's no cohesiveness in Washington. I don't think there's any rational perception that somewhere along the line, we no longer have the money to pay for all the pensions and to pay for the bureaucracies and pay for everything that's been built up and built up. As taxes contract, and as income, the government income contracts, I don't see any resolution other than printing money. Now printing yeah. fiat money eventually causes to me an even worse collapse later on. Is this solvable? I do not know. I am working yeah, on that. The that,
0: that let, me, let me just add on to because you're absolutely right. That would be where I would think it would go before we did some debt jubilee thing is that if we inflate the economy, then essentially all of the uh, people who are having to pay back money are paying back with worthless money anyway, so they win. It it is de facto a jubilee in a sense. So imagine if there's a a thousand percent per, I have have five payments left on my loan to you of equal to a thousand dollars a month for the last five months. If inflation gets hyperinflation to the thousand percent per month or something, then I'm like, oh, sure, I'll pay you back this 1000 bucks. Go buy yourself a can of Coke with it, right? So instead of that 1000 bucks buying two flat-screen, two or three flat-screen TVs, you're lucky to buy a can of Coke with it. So in that respect, that would be the jubilee. The, the idea of debt forgiveness would be the, the situation's got so bad that money's worthless and contractually, I owe you money back that's going to be worthless. And so as the debtor... Um, uh, as the person who owes the debt, uh, I win. I mean, I really essentially owe you money that's worthless. I owe you five cans of Coke instead of uh, 15 flat-screen TVs.
2: Well, the only reason debt, worked in the past was because it was an autocratic king in, in, in Mesopotamia that if you didn't do it, your head was chopped. And <laughs> in Jerusalem... It was a case that the people had been, co- had all gotten together, coerced, whatever you want to call it, into signing a covenant where they agreed to it. So yeah. it was part religious, theological, it was part economic. We don't have that mechanism today. Instead, right. we have a government that has, that is fighting each other. There's not the cohesiveness that was there when I was in 41, when the Japanese attacked. Pearl Harbor. There was no dispute about the Democrats and Republicans fighting each other. How they were going to do it. There was a cohesive doesn't exist. Yeah. What's going to happen? I don't know. It's, it's the, a really the, good question.
0: And, and you and you bring up a, a good point with the autocratic kings. Uh, what I can tell you from from studies of economic freedom over the uh, periods of history is that's exactly why those those countries never grew because if the autocratic king can simply wipe out with with a stroke of a pen all the debts, then we're exactly missing out on the argument that I was making earlier that that's what allows our economy to grow so well. So those uh, economies stay stagnant. Uh, They don't grow. Uh, The king stays rich because there's enough uh, natural resources and other things to go around that the king can basically confiscate every little bit that's there but in terms of economy wide especially on a per capita basis nobody grows nobody gets better um and so you have economic stagnation and that's exactly what we see uh I mean, we, there's current day uh, examples of this in Venezuela and uh Cuba uh North Korea um so the the dictators do just fine um but the the average folk uh can't get by and so that's that's definitely a, a an example historically where Yes, there was debt jubilees, but it was a cruddy idea to do.
2: (laughs) I you know, I agree with you absolutely. The only reason what I did, and it was not tongue in cheek, it was actually serious, is that if it was to be a consideration for a debt jubilee in order to do something that severe by wiping out portions of the debt, it would take something like as I put the Donald solution in my in QV two, in which Someone like Trump would say, "Okay, here's all we're going to do over the next 90 days, and then I'm going to resign." Putin and Z can't do it because they would be wiping out their own people and their own their own power structure. So they're not going to do it. I don't see, in realistically, any power structure that now exists that could do a dead jubilee. But if we don't have a dead jubilee, then the, the default position is some sort of a collapse if, if we are not able to somehow recover and pay for pensions, pay for the state debt. If you look at what they're talking, yes, the government's going to do $3 trillion. They're going to do another three or four trillion. How much money, are, they would have to throw 10 or $15 trillion in in paper money to the states and to pensions in order to do what? bring them up to at least a level, some level of sustainability. But then with what? There'd be no, the money would be worthless.
0: Yeah, I think I fall back to uh, bankruptcy. I mean, one of the beauties of our decentralized system is that you have a number of individual contracts, a number of individual states, if you will, that have lousy pension deals that they struck up, you know, 30 years ago that they thought was gonna work fine because they would just grow out of the problem. Our, members, our membership will continue to grow. Uh, my dad uh, uh, just got his letter in the mail that his uh, Teamster Union pension is going to end, uh, or is projected to end uh, in 2025, I think it is. And so he was promised a pension basically till he dies. And so that sort of stuff, um, the beauty of our decentralized system is that we can have a breakdown of one union we can have the breakdown of one state, we can have the breakdown, and it's unfortunate, don't get me wrong. You know, the retirees that were entitled to those pensions, like my dad, they're gonna get screwed, right? I mean, they're the ones that are gonna feel the pain, but it doesn't bring down the all of the United States. If if we have decentralized systems, many can fail, but it's not contagious across all of the economy. And so I, I think I think by not having a top down approach where the federal government Trumpster or whatever can just, you know, wipe out everything all at once really works to our benefit in that uh, the safety nets, social safety nets that we have in place in the United States can help those people that are in need. And we just have to let things fail as they're going to fail on individual basis. And people can declare individual bankruptcy or companies. uh, We've heard of a few companies now declaring bankruptcy or shutting down some of their businesses Again, all of the, I'm not discounting that those aren't unfortunate events and that real people have real hurt, but I think um, uh, an other ways such as a nationwide forgiveness of debt would, would cause much, much greater pain uh, over the long haul for many more people.
2: But in the long run, that's exactly what will happen if pain, but pain in another direction. What you're suggesting is states, if states' pensions are bankrupt, they should go bankrupt. I wonder and question whether the federal government is going to ever allow that to happen. The Democrats certainly do not want that to happen because the biggest debt is in Illinois, New York, and California. So that's, that's unlikely to occur. Um, states should diminish their bureaucracies to stay within their tax roll. Who's going to do it? Yeah, the other guy can do it but not me. And that's, I think, the problem. Politically, no, from a human sense, the other guy should suffer, but not me. And that's (laughs) how I don't know how we're going to balance that if it's not done across the board.
0: Yeah, so the the end game, I I agree with you on, on a lot of those points. The end game, as I see it, is that the federal government probably will bail out those states, which means they will run a bigger deficit, which means we will have a bigger national debt, which means our taxes will be higher in the future for probably my child. Maybe I'll be dead by then, hopefully. Uh, but the generational transfer will continue to grow. And eventually, that if that debt gets to a point where interest rates are too high or taxes aren't there, then you're back to the printing money phenomenon. And who pays? Everybody does. We pay with the price of our groceries at the store. We pay with the price of our gas in our tanks. We pay with our houses. We pay with our... Uh, everything we do through general inflation on the rise. And hopefully that wouldn't get to a hyperinflation level. But, you know, we're on, we're on a path where we don't seem to have any fiscal prudence uh, to keep balances in check. And so that would be my prediction uh, of we where how that would all shake out.
2: But we don't have any inflation because as we reach a point that there would be inflation, the feds print another trillion dollars worth of money there will not be inflation in the near future because they're just going to print money to make certain it never goes. There is no inflation.
0: Well, okay. So I got I just got to correct you on that. So if they actually printed money, we just did an episode, by the way, just uh, two episodes ago, listeners, if you want to check out on, uh, on that, uh, the government actually pays for that through issuing bonds, which effectively can look like printing money. But if they do that, um, and the bonds end up being bad, then it is going to lead to inflation. So the idea of printing money is positively related to inflation. You print money, you're going to have uh, rising prices, uh, not the opposite way. The reason why we're seeing, uh, we haven't seen yet anyway, inflationary effects from what the government's done is it's, it's too early. Um, same thing with the 2008 financial crisis. And I thought this was a reflection. I put it in a Twitter post that, uh, I think we're starting to see a little bit of what um, was called the Ricardo Barrow effect named after a famous ancient economist, David Ricardo, and uh, was later formalized by Robert Barrow, another Nobel prize winner uh, in economics. And the idea was that if the government's fiscally irresponsible and they're taking on more debt and higher deficits, the, the general public could increase saving rates that will somewhat offset that because they know they're going to be hit with a future tax liability. So what happened here in the last just month, it was kind of amazing when I actually looked at the graph, uh, our personal saving rates over the last few months have jumped from like six, seven percent to 13 percent. Right. And so people are indeed uh, saving some of that money and that can have a diminished diminishing effect on uh, overall inflation. And that's what we saw in the 2008 financial crisis that both corporations and individuals were holding on to cash because in the time of a crisis, uh, cash is king uh, was kind of the mantra back in 2008. And so if you can stockpile a bunch of cash, you can ride out some things. We've also done some episodes on Dave Ramsey, who I'm a fan of and and follow personally. And uh, that's what the old emergency fund is. I mean, if you've got three to six months of expenses built up as an emergency fund and you're making let's say $5,000 a month, you've got $15,000 to $30,000 sitting in a bank account ready to be tapped at any given point in time. If a crisis hits your life, you can live off that money for a while, right? And so um, I think all of that are some unknown variables that some economists don't always have uh, the ability to plug into their models. And
2: And then there's the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is COVID-19. Because I don't think any of these projections worked on a premise that you'd have as many people out of work, as many businesses shutting down. The What if it doesn't reopen? You're right. If everything's two months from now, COVID-19 is on reset. Everything's great and wonderful. We're all making a lot of money. The taxes are coming in. Everything you're saying is could well be correct. But what happens if it doesn't? What, when they start opening, then the COVID-19 goes up and people don't go to work. You're, the idea of having taxes assumes that there's people to pay the taxes and they have the money to pay the taxes. We're may- people
0: willing to borrow the, or lend the money to, right? I mean, when when, so, when Trump issues out three more trillion dollars of debt, yeah, who are the takers? Are they, are they going to so, be there or not? So, so what I'm
2: seeing is there's an elephant of the room that's bouncing around. That's breaking all of the economic models that might have, that worked in 2008 to 2009. Oh, let's
0: face it. They didn't even really work then. So I, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> macroeconomic the, models, the, I, I don't I don't, the, don't put much faith into.
2: I've read too much in the last five years. They all believe it was working because they've all said it was. And there was all this this wishful thinking that what they were doing, hey, this is going to work. It's going to keep on working. It's going up, up and up. But if it goes down, 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 then what do we do when there's no money to pay, when there's not enough money to pay taxes and people are scared and they, what if they're scared six months from now and they are not, and you know, then what?
0: All right. So I, so it sounds like you're agreeing with me. Debt Jubilee is a terrible idea. We should not forgive all debts, but a realistic thing that you made me think about during this discussion is that if it gets really bad and the only way out is to print money, then we're going to, by default, have effective jubilee if we have a thousand percent inflation. Right?
2: Yeah, let me put it another way that I, my <laughs> wife does not like. Our pension goes. The last, the last vestige. You poor slobs that are not sixty-five and are going on Social Security <laughs> or people on private pensions—they're, they're getting screwed right now. Oh yeah, for sure. But I even expect. That I'm going to lose my Social Security and my Canadian pension, because yeah. if the government if the money runs out and the money isn't there, they can't send out a check unless they print more money. Yeah. So,
0: and then I the think- money that they send you becomes worthless anyway because you well, can only buy a can of Coke at the grocery store instead of a flat screen TV.
2: You know, the the the, the Canada's giving me five hundred dollars for to live to live on because how bad things are. The America is getting twelve hundred. But how much is that money going to be worth?
0: Yeah, that is a big question mark. Well, that looks like a good place to to end today, uh, Charles. I appreciate the conversation. I think it was fun to explore a little uh, biblical angles and and uh, issues there with uh, regarding debt jubilees. Justin, any uh,
1: closing closing thoughts? Uh, with regard to social security, sometimes. When I'm talking to my undergraduates, I ask them if they want to hear a joke about Social Security, and they say, yeah, and I say, ah, you probably won't get it, never mind.
2: <laughs> yeah, but you see, the thing is, the Justin, you know, in the 60s, that was my position. I thought I'd never see it. I was shocked when I actually got it.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Okay, so those, those expectations yeah. have been around for a while. those
2: expectations have been around for a while. <laughs>
0: But, all right. Well, be, get it. <laughs> on behalf of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University, I'd like to thank you all for listening and thank our guests. Uh, Charles uh, Fogel. Sorry, I kind of stumbled on your name a little bit there. Um, it was a pleasure to have you on. And um, listeners, if you feel so inclined, you like what you hear, uh, please go to the Google uh, search engine there and give us a little five-star rating. Uh, If you didn't like what you hear, don't give us a one-star rating. Uh, (laughs) But uh, we sure appreciate you listening. And and, uh, other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.
1: Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks, Charles.